You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Welcome to In Context, where our goal is to help you understand God's Word in the context it was written and how it applies in the context of your life. Today on the broadcast, it's a delight to have Dr. Daryl Bach. Dr. Bach and I spent uh, a little bit of time together in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Got to know him as a Go friend. Go way back. <laughs> Goes way <Yep>. back. <laughs> Daryl is the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and a Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies, also a New York Times bestselling author who's now written over 30 books. His commentaries on Luke and Acts are regarded as some of the most outstanding in their field. He has been the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. He's also a consulting editor for Christianity Today, serves on the boards of Wheaton College and Chosen People Ministries. Daryl's newest book, How Would Jesus Vote? Do Your Political Views Really Align with the Bible? Daryl, it's great to have you on the broadcast. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Okay, Daryl, 1 Timothy 2. Paul wrote to the young Timothy, first of all, I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. For the month of October, we're talking about our upcoming election without equal, a unique time, You've engaged this topic, and uh, you've been on Christianity Today. You're speaking about it everywhere you go. Why in the world write a book on this whole evangelical engagement in politics? Because I think our political engagement now, both within the church and from the church to the rest of the world, right now is a real mess. And I think it's in part because we have not properly thought through a variety of things, including what our role is as the church as well as how to have the conversation and try to move it forward, even in the midst of the disagreements that we clearly do have. When you started this, you probably had an objective in mind, what you just articulated, but you probably discovered along the way the path wasn't a straight line. Well, I knew going in it wasn't going to be a straight line. I mean, basically, the catch in the whole operation was when I wrote the original draft of the book two years ago, I had no idea we'd have the candidates we ended up with, which has only accelerated the issue in some ways. We live in a fallen world. Jesus made clear to the disciples we live in a fallen world. He spent the second half of his ministry preparing people for the fact that we were living in a fallen world, and yet we struggle to cope with living in a fallen world. And the passage that I like for engagement perhaps the best is the passage in 1 Peter 3, where it says, you know, basically, if you live well and do what's right, you shouldn't expect any problems. And the next verse says, but if you suffer for doing good, you're blessed, which tells you that sometimes it doesn't work the way it ought to work. And that's because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world of tensions and politics is about tensions uh, all over the place. And then having to figure out how I live with my neighbor who's different than me. Let's talk about worldview clashes and your example of abortion and sexuality. Those are a different kind of problem in that, you know, and I'm expressing myself here. I don't think there's a middle ground here to be found. The the way in which abortion is handled, the way in which same-sex marriage is handled from a moral standpoint, I think the Bible is fairly clear on. But 
we still have the real practical pastoral problem of what do you do when a mother walks into your pastor's office and says, my son came out as gay, give me help on how I should how I should deal with this, those kinds of things. There are still the real relational elements that one has to sort through in the midst of their convictions. And then there's the whole political realm of what that involves. This is actually in some ways both the easiest and the hardest category. It's the most straightforward at one level, but it also makes it the trickiest on the other because the discussion is a different kind of discussion than the other two categories. One of the observations of the book, however, was this, and it's important in light of the way our conversation is proceeding. The bulk of the issues that we face in politics today are not in this category that we're talking about now. Most of the political discussions we have are in that first category where each side is bringing biblical principles, at least in part, to bear. And the question is, how do you relate those biblical principles in tension with one another in terms of what you face? So back to your first question, how do you handle the abortion issue? How do you handle the same-sex discussion? I think you do your best to lay out what the biblical morals are. You make that case in the public square. You recognize that we live in a democracy. You may well lose that vote. And then you have to deal with how do you function within your own societies, within your own communities with those kinds of standards. I really think we haven't thought enough about what the standards of our own communities are and how we reflect that consistently enough to earn the right to challenge what's going on in the larger society. When our divorce rates in our churches are equal to that with going on in the rest of the community, that undercuts our credibility in talking about sexuality, family, and marriage. But one could argue that the culture has influenced the church. And, and at some point, you know, this notion of the church engaging the culture. I mean, I still have a, a hard time finding a passage that says we engage the culture on cultural issues. We are to represent the gospel of Christ. We're to make disciples. We're to share the good news of salvation. And when we talk about cultural engagement, there's this you know 600-pound gorilla put on our back that these ills in society are because of what the church didn't do. Uh, fair enough, but I, I think I think it's important to recognize that we're talking about a different kind of context for the Christian who lives in the world today versus the first century Christian in this sense. In the first century, you didn't have a vote. In the first century, you couldn't be a citizen in the way you can be a citizen in a participatory democracy. You couldn't engage society in the ways that we can today that influence the political system in the way that we're talking about. Now, the next question is, how do I step into that engagement? Not only what positions do I hold, but what kind of tone do I deliver as I do that? How do I represent the Lord in such a way that the challenge of the gospel, which is inevitably there, meets up and faces up to the invitation that's also in the gospel that says to someone that you need what God can provide in order to live in a way that's going to honor God. That's part of what the gospel message and the mission message is. We don't fix our world by changing laws. We fix our world by changing hearts. And the gospel does that. So one of my complaints has been that when we engage without thinking through the actual role of what the gospel does and what mission does, what it means to be an ambassador for Christ, which I think is the primary metaphor the New Testament gives us, or what it means to think of ourselves not in a culture war in which the other person who disagrees with me is the enemy, but it's a spiritual battle, as Ephesians 6 says, and the other person is someone who's in the grasp of someone trying to do them harm, and I'm in the rescue operation. That's how you engage, and you try and engage in a way in which the invitation of the gospel is always 
put alongside the challenge that comes inherently in the gospel in terms of the way people are living. Now, in, in your book, you tackle some heady issues in these chapters about gun control, about comprehensive health care coverage, or should it be free choice, uh, just war versus pacifism, so forth and so on. W- were there any of those that were, let's say, uh, more enlightening for you personally in your study and research? I thought the immigration one was fascinating because when I dove into the immigration thing and I looked at the history of our immigration law and perhaps more importantly, the history of our immigration practice, I found it hard assessing that morally to simply say all the burden is on the part of the immigrant who ends up being here illegally, that the way in which we have gone about getting into the situation that we are into, and there's a contribution that's come from our end that basically said to the immigrant, you can stay here, we'll hire you, we'll take care of you, we'll make sure you can continue to work here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There were things like that. The other surprise was in healthcare. I discovered in the midst of that chapter the important role that insurance companies have that's unlike any other healthcare structure in the world and the impact that has on our prices and our decision-making, the injection of someone between the patient and the doctor in a way that doesn't happen anywhere else. So those, I think, were the two biggest surprises that I had in, in working on this material. Let's talk about comprehensive coverage and versus free market economies and choice because the notion, what you just said, that this third party controls what your NP, nurse practitioner, your PA, or your doctor can prescribe or recommend is then weighted monetarily. It's weighted based on technology. A lot of different decisions go into, can we give you the newest drug or will an older one be just as good for you? Um, At some point, there's got to be a cost benefit just in in an economy. On the other side, can you have comprehensive universal coverage without an extraordinary burden on the whole? Well, I think that's part of the question. That's actually part of the conversation is what kind of society are we going to attempt to have? How do we care for one another as citizens? How do I care for my neighbor? What's my moral responsibility and obligation to the people that I live with in terms of care? And you do have to balance the cost. But the point of the book is to say we actually need to wrestle with how all these factors come together rather than simply putting what I would call a label over it, well, that's socialism or that's not, and actually dive in and ask ourselves, what does this give? Should someone's life be at stake because they have to wait eight months for a procedure that could easily be given to them at the time at which it's discovered? Those kinds of questions. And you're asking yourself, what kind of society are you trying to build in terms of mutual responsibility, mutual care, the serving and caring for one another in the midst of what are also economic decisions that one has to be aware of and how that works. You've got to balance all that together. The point of the book is not to say one side or the other is right. The point of the book is to say we need to have a different kind of conversation about how we put all these pieces on the table and wrestle with how we balance them rather than cherry-picking on one side of that conversation or the other. I agree in theory. But the average voter that goes to the poll, and I'm talking about a Christian, not the population, but the average voter that goes to poll, who goes to church, who loves God, who loves Christ, let's say they're born-again, fundamental, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. Let's qualify it. They are not going to have this discussion. They're voting their conscience probably at best-case scenario on life maybe, on marriage maybe, and personal constituents. How does it affect my life? 
How does it affect me as a middle wage earner or a below middle wage or a higher wage earner, right? Politics, ultimately, the way we practice it is about self-interest. I mean, let's be clear about that. I mean, the amount of special interest money that drives politics in our country is unusual in the amount of money we spend. (laughs) That's a nice way of saying it. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Ungodly and, you know, would be a better and, way. <laughs> that's right. And part of you know, part of my reaction is I travel globally. I watch Christians who hold the same kinds of beliefs I do in other parts of the world who put their packages together differently because they've assembled their values in a different kind of way. And in some cases, I've asked myself, what creates that difference and why do they see it so differently than most of us in the States do? And part of it has to do with wrestling with these various kinds of questions, of asking the question, am I simply a single or dual-issue voter, or do I think through the entire package of what it is that I'm voting for? Those kinds of questions. And we do love to oversimplify, and we do love to think about what's best for me in our political practice, in our political engagement. The original title of the book was Life, Liberty, and Loving Your Neighbor. And the point of the original title was that I need to think more about who I live with and how we function together as a society rather than just thinking about my own special interests. Now, that cuts against the grain of the way most politics works. I'll grant you that. But I also think it puts us in a position to have better conversations about what it is we need as a society, because the society is not just about me. But the complexity, I mean, just, just what you've articulated, let's go back to the Bible-believing fundamental Christian who's going to the polls. Realistically, Daryl, are they ever going to get to a point where they're thinking beyond the Western notion of my personal rights? Well, I hope so. I hope churches are pushing them in that direction because I actually think that's a very biblical value. And so if they're not doing it, it's not only their failure, I would submit, it's a failure of the church at large to get people to think beyond themselves to the good of the community, to the good of the people that they have. What does it mean to keep the great commandment to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself if you're never thinking about your neighbor? I'll grant you the easy thing to do is to default to the way the culture shapes us and molds us to think about ourselves in individualized terms. But I'm saying that the biblical calling here is for us to be bigger than that. You had a A title for the book, and I guess B or C or D one, how would Jesus vote? Mm-hmm. So the consumer is going to pick up your book and they're going to say, okay, Daryl's going to tell me how Jesus would vote uh, in November. Are you asking a question? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the, that's the title of your book. How Actually, would Jesus vote? Uh, yes. so, so if the I read your book, yes. do I know how? Yeah, now, it's not. Let me be clear. It's not who would Jesus vote for. Ah. Okay? That's not the question. All right? It's how would Jesus vote? How would he even approach these issues and think about them? The way that normally gets asked is, you know, how would Jesus vote, i.e., who do you think we could vote for? My joke answer that's actually serious is he'd have you vote for your neighbor. He'd have you think beyond yourself and think about the biblical values that contribute to a healthy society in a way in which you're listening to, interacting with, and bringing into the equation how your neighbor is a part of the very society and the very policies that you're voting for. Okay, great. That would be a factor. I love it. But then if either candidate doesn't answer that question, 
then what do you do? Right. <laughs> well, I've just recently written an editorial that's actually going to argue that it's a perfectly appropriate and moral position not to vote for president in this particular election. That your choice is how do you want your house destroyed by a tornado or by a hurricane? Both candidates. That's my only choice. (laughs) (laughs) Tornado or hurricane? Come on. I mean, if you, uh, if you, I mean, if you watch people talk about this election and the candidates and the negative side of the ledger that each candidate gives us, and everyone's recognizing that there's a negative side of the ledger that's coming from both candidates, and some people are weighing, well, is one more than the other? The answer may be. It may it may be that there's one that's more than the other, but it certainly is a pretty close call. That's why everyone is so tormented about this particular election. And my point would be the moment I say I vote for X, people not only perceive that I have endorsed the things that I believe in that that candidate represents, but they also think I've endorsed the things that I don't believe in. And sometimes it's better to withhold that vote and vote around the ticket. The down ballot. Candidates are more worthy. Yeah, down the ballot and do it, do the job that way. Because I think the church's perception of what the church represents is wrapped up in the way we advocate for our political candidates in part. And that is a very confusing thing for people in relationship to the gospel. Down ballot, though, we have SCOTUS appointments coming up. Let's say we have terribly flawed, incredibly flawed candidates. Your negative ledger is equal, let's just say, for conversation's sake. And which one of those negative ledgers would be more likely to put in a SCOTUS or two or three who would lean a little bit more biblically, a little bit more pro-marriage, pro-life? Yeah, and the problem is is that you can't discuss it in isolation. I mean this because for you might be right that I might get a better Supreme Court, but what if I get a belligerent foreign policy that leads us to world war? Okay, is that is that a good option? Is that a good alternative? What if I get a society that makes us more tribal than we already are because we have disrespect for certain segments of our society and the way we communicate and talk about them? Is that a better choice? And so the the problem that you've got here is that I put an imprimatur with my vote on the entire package, not just one piece. I may have a preference for one candidate that goes in one direction and that says I'm going to vote for that reason. But the reality is that the perception is more complicated than that. But here's the other thing to say in relationship to this that is also important. I would argue that our choices are so bad in this election that Christians shouldn't give each other a hard time for a different choice they may make in the midst of a bad series of bad choices. That the mistake that the church is making is to allow themselves to be polarized to too great a degree on the basis of this election, on the basis of poor candidates on both parts, and that we would do ourselves a better service to recognize the difficulty of the choices that we're making and to not treat something as an absolute clear choice that in this case is not an absolutely clear choice. Dr. Daryl Bach, how would Jesus vote? Do your political views really align with the Bible? His newest book, you need to pick it up and check it out. Daryl, look forward to your editorial, and thanks for your time. Hey, thank you, as always, Michael. You can find Daryl's editorial on our website. Check it out, michaelincontext.com. Have a question or comment about today's show? Send Michael a note on Twitter at Dr. Easley. Thanks again for listening. 